Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Last week, the University of North Dakota, where I work, announced that they had found the remains of Native Americans in storage. These skulls, bones, and artifacts were used as teaching and research tools and for other purposes of which we're not yet aware. They were found in boxes, in closets, illegally stored in conditions of disrespect. To UND's credit, they've worked with tribal leaders to perform religious rituals and follow proper procedures to repatriate these remains, meaning they're being returned to tribes so they can be with their rightful descendants. But this is only the latest revelation in U.S. and Canada about the way schools in particular have violated the humanity of indigenous peoples in North America. In recognition of this, I thought it would be best to rebroadcast an episode from May 2014 in which my guest and I discuss the legal status of Indian tribes and the reality of day-to-day life on reservations. This was a powerful discussion that has remained with me for years, and I hope it speaks to you in the same way. If you'd like to learn more about UND's discovery and what's being done to return the remains, please visit und.edu slash about slash president slash repatriation dot html. It's not the simplest URL to remember, but if you Google UND and repatriation, it's currently the first result. Again, that's und.edu slash about slash president slash repatriation dot html. And as always, I hope you will support our show and our efforts to provide compelling philosophical explorations of controversial issues that are exploited for drama and attention on other media outlets. Rate us on iTunes and Spotify, that's how new listeners find us, and share us on your social media. Also, visit whyradioshow.org for our archives, show notes, and please click Donate on the upper right-hand corner to make your tax-deductible donations through the University of North Dakota's secure website. We exist solely on listener contributions. That's www.yradioshow.org to donate. Thank you very much, and please enjoy this Encore episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. Today, we're talking with George Tink Tinker about Native American tribal sovereignty. We all tell the stories of our lives as if they're immediately understandable. We expect people to hear our history and grasp pretty quickly how we ended up where we are and why we do what we do. Our narratives are our explanations for who we claim to be. We do the same thing when we tell the story of our nation. In America's case, we can describe the progress of an exceptional country or the bullying of an imperialist one. We can paint a picture of a battlefield wrecked by inequality and racism or a home of great opportunity. But however we tell the story, we expect, for the most part, that the connection between the pieces will be self-evident. History feels like reason, justification, and explanation all at the same time. It is told as if it's simple, obvious, and intuitive. But the fact of the matter is that there's no easy connection between the past, the present, and the future. There's no inevitable outcome for any one event, and the facts are buried in meaning, emphasis, and experience. History, what actually happens, is hidden by historiography, the story that we create to connect and explain events. And this historiography is the epicenter of our deepest, most intractable disagreements. It's also the core of our greatest misunderstandings. I say all this because on today's show, we are asking a question that threatens almost all of our national narratives. By asking whether American Indian tribes are sovereign nations, we're forced to encounter the present that the past has brought us to, and the justifications we use to endorse or reject it. Whatever position we take on the issue, the question itself forces us to acknowledge that there are insider and outsider perspectives victim and perpetrator points of view, and deep convictions held by the inheritors of pain and the recipients of advantage. Suppose then we say that tribes are indeed sovereign nations. What are the consequences for our national boundaries, our federal laws, our systems of free trade? These concerns don't fit into our political way of thinking. They're conservative in that they preserve a glorified past, a way of being that no longer seems compatible with the modern world but they're revolutionary too in that they require a radical break with the present, a massive structural change. Americans don't know how to deal with anything that is both conservative and revolutionary at the same time. 
we expect them to be opposites. But suppose we say instead that Indian tribes are not sovereign. How then can we claim that we have acknowledged and respected those who were trampled as the country expanded? We want justice, retribution, healing, the liberal progressive outcome. But we also want stability, consistency, and to preserve what we have. This is a different kind of conservatism, the day-to-day kind that we rely on to keep our property and preserve our laws as we understand them. Each answer to the question is overwhelming, so we look towards other experiences. We ask, fairly I think, how the genocide and enslavement of Indians relates to the genocide and enslavement of Jews and Africans. But if that's all we do, in fact, even if that's mostly what we do, we obscure the American Indian's unique experience. To talk about Native Americans only in terms of others is to suggest that we don't have to find the right words, the right stories, the right tone to talk about American Indians themselves as people who are worthy of our full attention. These are all tough questions, but they are intensified by this being North Dakota, the land where much of it happened. They're made even more problematic by this program being a product of the University of North Dakota, a university that has never made its Indian students feel welcome, and that fought tooth and nail to preserve the moniker Fighting Sioux, the team nickname and logo that reduced all Indians to cartoon characters for fun and profit. It took the U.S. Supreme Court and the National Guard to desegregate Arkansas. It took the courts and the NCAA to force my university to entertain the American Indian point of view. So when we pose the question asking whether tribes are sovereign nations, we realize that history is not simple that there is no single point of view, that our political understanding resists the question itself, and that whatever answer we come up with is invasive to everybody's way of life. And this means, frankly, that I don't know where to start. But what I do know is that it is this precise kind of question that philosophy excels at, because philosophy lets us ask about it all, without embarrassment and without fear. Acknowledging this early on allows me to be optimistic, because it suggests that we are already on the right track. And now we turn to our guest. George Tink Tinker is the Clifford Baldridge Professor of American Indian Cultures and Religious Traditions at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's the author of numerous books, including American Indian Liberation, A Theology of Sovereignty. Tink, welcome to Why. Good to be with you, Jack. Today's episode is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking questions, but if you'd like to interact with other listeners, please visit our chat room at whyradioshow.org or post your comments at facebook.com slash whyradioshow. So, Tink, given everything I've indicated in my monologue, I guess it's worth starting by asking you the very basic question. What do we have to talk about before we talk about sovereignty? Well, you've already begun to name it. We've got to talk about the utter complexity of the history of the Euro-Christian invasion of this continent and what that has meant for Indian peoples uh, over the generations. Uh, We've got to talk about how this American narrative came into being and and how it became uh, a narrative about American exceptionalism, a narrative that erases the violence perpetrated against the Aboriginal inhabitants of this continent, I I suppose we have to start there somehow and then talk about how that violence was compounded not just by military violence, but by the violence of this thing that that the Euro-Christian tradition calls the rule of law, because a, a lot of the erosion of Indian people's peopleness has been legal. So already we've got these terms. We've got American exceptionalism. We've got Euro-Christian. We've got the rule of law. Are these terms that everyone should have an equal understanding of? Are these terms – I mean they sound like they're terms that even add to the complexity, that bring in complicated emotions. How do we divide the conversation or is it impossible to divide the conversation in such a way that we're not faced immediately with – us versus them, or my side versus your side, or good versus evil, or are those terms already, do they already contain all of these ideas? Well, the terms are deeply conflicted from, from the get-go, so the, there's no way to assume that we all have an, you know, an equal understanding of what the rule of law is. 
for politicians in the United States, the rule of law is the be-all and end-all. It's the one thing that sets the United States apart from uh, most of the rest of the world. And that goes back to Benjamin Franklin claiming this is a nation of laws. Uh, But the laws were used in order to subjugate the native inhabitants who were being pushed aside just when Franklin spoke those words in order to make room for your Christian farmers. So laws are not morally neutral? Yes. In fact, I I would argue in the case of uh, the conflict between Aboriginal inhabitants, American Indians, and the your Christian invaders, law has been characteristically used in order to neutralize American Indians. In other words, it wasn't neutral in and of itself, but it was a political device from the get-go. We, we can talk about Johnson v. McIntosh, for instance, uh, wh- which is the foundation of all U.S. property law uh, in the United States and gets used in the rest of the British Empire, the British Commonwealth, in similar ways. Uh, it's both a law and deeply theological and religious because John Marshall and his majority decision calls upon Christianity as a prime reason for justifying the, the, the killing and removal of Indian people and converting Indian property into uh, into private European holdings. And is this why uh, so much of your work, when you talk about political issues and contemporary political issues, you also spend most of your time talking about theology? Now, you're a professor of theology, so obviously that interests you. But <laughs> it, but but is there a is there a is there a necessity to talking about religion and the theological? When we talk about these issues of property and sovereignty and 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 colonialism, are they necessarily intertwined? From my perspective, perspective, they certainly are. Yes, uh, the, the 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 rationale for the conquest was from the very beginning a Christian rationale. Uh, from from for the very first English. Christians who made their way to these shores, both in Jamestown and then in New England at Plymouth and then Boston, they were making the analogy between the people of Israel as a chosen people and themselves as the new chosen people and saw themselves as coming to a new promised land. So it was theological and religious from the beginning, and the U.S. Supreme Court has confirmed that in all of its uh, all of its court decisions around U.S. Uh, American Indian relations. Okay, so, so there there are two sets of questions that are that are going through my head now. The first is about terms, and I think it's related to the second, which is. I, of course, when I was thinking about the show and thinking about how to speak uh, and want to be as respectful and, and, and correct as possible, didn't know whether to use Native American, use the term Indian, use the term American Indian. At the same time, uh, we're now using the term Christian, uh, which, you know, there's Catholic and there's Christian and there's Lutheran and there's all these denominations. And, of course, there are all these issues. So, so I guess the first question is, how important is this kind of terminology, and is there a better or worse way or a better or worse list to use it? And the second, which is related, is I can hear many of the, 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 the Christian listeners uh, in my head right now saying, well, but Christianity is a religion of love, and when you talk about Christian conquest, you're misrepresenting Christianity. How do we solve these problems? How do we talk about things that aren't monolithic in a way that's representative of the complexity, but that still lets us talk about what a group of people does, who a group of people are, and how they have a connectedness. How do, how do we do sure. that? Uh, I teach in a school of theology where we're training a variety of Christian students for uh, denominational 
ministerial service uh, in a variety of denominations. So we, we have maybe a dozen different denominations represented by students on our campus. And I, I guess my argument has been, and, and it'll be with you, and I suppose I'm, I'm pushing you, Jack, as well uh, on this, that, that there is a worldview difference between traditional American Indians on this continent and people in Europe, say, uh, before 1607. And, and it pertains yet to this day. And that worldview is what I refer to as Euro-Christian. Uh, to give you an example, I have a colleague at the University of Denver who claims that uh, my critique of Christianity doesn't affect him because he's an atheist. It took me about two months, but eventually I convinced him he's a Christian atheist. That is, he frames his whole language of being an atheist in terms of that Euro-Christian worldview. You have an essay called, I believe, um, Why I Do Not Believe in a Creator, and, and I, I think this is a really good example to point to what you're saying. What you argue is that the term creator is a colonizer's term, that it doesn't fit into... The, the Indian worldview. Can can you use that as an example to to explain what you mean when you call someone, say, a Christian atheist? Yeah, that, that essay, why I do not believe in a creator, does not make me an atheist. In fact, I would argue that American Indian traditions are non-theist until the missionaries began to invade our country. Uh, and brought their own ideology with them and their own worldview and began to try to convert Indians to their religious belief system, they had to pick words in all of our languages to stand in as words that mean creator or God. For the Osages, it was Wakonda. Well, Wakonda does not mean God. Wakonda is not even a person. Wakonda is a cosmic energy that uh, permeates everything in the universe. Every human being, every animal, every bird, every tree, every rock. So if I'm going to make that a person and call it a creator or a god, I've just falsified the whole Osage understanding of the cosmos. So this is, this is why you're calling your colleague a Christian atheist, because what he says, if I interpret correctly, is... <clears throat> I don't believe in a person who created all this stuff and a in a man who is the initiator. Uh, I am rejecting that, but in your in the theology that you're describing, the Osage theology, that question doesn't even make sense to say I do believe or I don't believe in a creator. It doesn't even fit the schema because there's this cosmic energy that culturally and religiously would never be described in terms of an individual. So even taking a position, a negative position in the debate, is to accept the debate itself. That's right. Uh, and, and my atheist friend at the University of Denver frames his disavowal of a belief in God in terms of that same worldview that generates language about the existence of God and what God is. Uh, generates language about it in different ideological packages that we might call denominations. So that, you know, what Presbyterians have to say about God gets framed very differently than what Lutherans have to say, even though the two are now close enough that they have, you know, a partnership agreement with one another, for instance. How hard is it to get students, to get colleagues, to get our listeners, to really try to enter into what sounds like a fairly radically different perspective. I would imagine it would feel insurmountable sometimes, this, this divide. I just finished teaching a seminar, Winter Quarter, titled American Indian uh, Spiritual Traditions, Religious Traditions. Ten weeks... I had 20 students in the class, uh, none of them American Indian by culture, although there was the smattering of 
Those white Americans who claim some Indian blood somewhere, a lost great-grandmother who was a princess, even though we don't have royalty. (laughs) Uh, From the very beginning, they wanted to use this classical doctrine of analogy that functions in Western universities where everything must be like something you already know. And so I would tell them a little bit about an American Indian tradition, and they would immediately want to say, that's just like I've experienced that too, or that's what I've always believed. And it took me a long, long time to get them to the point where they understood, no, it's not like anything you've ever believed or ever experienced. It is utterly different, and you have to let different be different if you're going to understand what this thing is we call American Indian religious traditions. And then we start talking about the difference of worldview and how the meta-narratives of one world don't coincide in any way with the meta-narratives of this other world. You, you, you used a phrase. I mean, it, it's funny because, of course, what you're saying now about analogy, there are things similar going in, in to my head. And when I do interfaith dialogues, which I don't do that much anymore, but as a Jew, when I walk into uh, a Christian group and talk about Judaism, there's always this choice I have to make between do I do I approach this group of people by highlighting the intensive differences, or do I try to uh, describe, you know, well, we're all the same people in their similarities. And I've actually, in my experience, I've seen that the older generation wants to point out the similarities and the younger generation wants to point the differences. But at the same time, you said this thing, this wonderful phrase, we have to let different be different. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What it, what does it mean to let different be different? And why are we, in general, so reluctant to let different be different? Uh, we're reluctant to do it because if you let different be different, there's an unknown that one cannot control. And of course, the Western university tradition, the Euro-Christian intellectual tradition, has been very much about controlling the world, bringing everything into a perspective of being known. Those who are more able to deal with the unknown are, 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 are those who are out on the edge of theoretical physics because they know what they don't know. But the rest of the tradition and the, and the rise of science itself was about converting the unknown to known so that it could be controlled. Uh, and, and anthropologists and missionaries who came out into the Indian world in the 19th century wanted to do the same thing. They could only begin to think they had control of Indian people if they had converted Indian culture into something that they could explain uh, from their own experience, from their own culture. So they begin right away to ask, what's your word for God? How do you experience God? Assuming everybody, it's a no-brainer, Everybody must have an experience of God and a name for God. So they weren't able to step back and see that, no, these Indian people live life very, very differently. They aren't just more primitive, secondary images of what a European Christian is like. Does that, does that begin to get at it? It does, and 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 it leads to uh, some some really really interesting questions. But we'll return to those questions in just a minute. You're listening to George Tinker and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We'll be back shortly. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. 
You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. Uh, we're talking with George Tinker about American Indian tribal sovereignty, but we're really talking about American Indian worldview, uh, theological questions, and a whole host of other things that we have to discuss even before we get to the major political question. And, you know, uh, I'm going to talk, as my listeners know I like to do, I'm going to talk about my, my daughter for a minute, my eight-year-old daughter. Uh, she few years ago became very interested in the American Doll uh, series of dolls. And we were really reluctant. I'm very anti-Barbie and for a variety of reasons. Uh, but there was a uh, Jewish doll that they had just released, and, and she came with a series of books on Jewish American history. And for reasons that are not worth getting into, we ended up getting her one. And she read the books, and they were wonderful, and the doll was wonderful, and the authentic history that they tried to make accessible to her when she was about six, six and a half was, was really wonderful. And then she became interested in other, other dolls, including the Native American doll. And this made me very, very uncomfortable, uh, although uh, she bought it actually with her own money, saved up over her allowance, and that's no small feat. And they came with uh, books as well, and there was... Uh, allegedly authentic food and all this sort of stuff. And she loves the doll, and, and it has, in some sense, given her what I think is a fair respect for a different tradition. Well, those folks in North Dakota know that uh, UND campus hosts a powwow every year. And we go almost every year, and it's, it's a wonderful chance to see uh, some of the ceremonies and actions and the beautiful costumes, although... It, it, there are things about it that make me uncomfortable watching people as, as if it's a zoo or something like that. And Adina wants to bring the doll to the powwow. And I don't know what to do <laughs> because on the one hand, she loves the doll and she wants to show everyone around her that, that, that she's thinking about these cultures and these traditions. And on the other hand, it's a doll of a people. <laughs> and I don't know what to do. And so Tink... I don't necessarily want you to answer that problem for me, although you are welcome to do so. I guess the question I want to ask you related to the discussion we had before the break is, is this doll, is the American Indian, American girl doll a manifestation of colonial power? Is it impossible to see that doll separate from the conquest which got us to the place where now there is a major corporation making a doll of a people. I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think this is uh, corporate America participating in the, uh, the, the, the grand narrative of American romance, trying to make everything its own. So Indian people are a wholly owned subsidiary of, uh, uh, of white folk in America. Now, having said that, let me, let me counter with two things. First of all, Indian people have a cultural affectation of generosity. And if your daughter takes that doll to a powwow, they're going to smile at her, nod their heads, and say she's really cute and appreciate her spirit. That generosity won't go away. Uh, the second thing I want to say is I'm raising a granddaughter who's now five, and she has a Pocahontas doll. And... I'm a, I'm a thorough objector to all American romantic images of Pocahontas because they're all predicated on the John Smith Pocahontas lie. You know, that, that fabrication of history. So she has this Pocahontas doll, and I spend my time telling her the actual history of Pocahontas and making sure that she doesn't fall into the trap of the cartoons that... Uh, Portray, portray Pocahontas as this romantic savior of, uh, uh, of your Christian folk, especially John Smith. Uh, I don't think there's any escaping it. A and the best we can do is just name it so that people have to wrestle with it anew every time it gets named. And that's actually what what makes it particularly difficult in in the North Dakota region, because as a culture, uh, 
North Dakotans don't like to talk about things that are controversial. They don't like to talk about things that make people uncomfortable. I always tell people that I didn't understand racism until I moved here. In New York, I thought, you know, there's a lot of racism in New York City, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I thought racism was shouting nasty things at people across the street and one gang getting into a fight with another gang. But once I moved here and I saw the culture of silence and the culture of subtleties and the students who would, who would say things sitting next to Native students that were so incredibly offensive and the Native students talking about being followed in Walmart and, and, and of course, yeah. also being yelled at in the street, right? So, so there's the aggressive stuff, but there's the quiet stuff and the silent stuff that nobody wants to talk about. So what That's you're the more hurtful. Of course it is. And so, so what, what you're suggesting, talk about it and offer the alternative uh, story, sounds mild, but I would suggest that it's actually quite revolutionary in itself. The act of talking about something forces us to encounter it. Well, uh, of course. Uh, and, and my students are no different, really fundamentally, even though you know, they're very bright, they're adults, they're thinking people who've come to a school where they're being challenged theologically, but they're no different from your, uh, your your neighbors there in North Dakota who'd rather not talk about the hard stuff. And these are liberal students, so they want to reduce all talk about Native Americans to that romantic American narrative of tragedy. Oh, it was really too bad what happened to Indian people. We're really sorry for that. Can we keep your land now? It's it's um um, I'm thinking more than perhaps I should on the radio because there was a moment <laughs> of silence. But it's that I mean that's I'm going to put off the question I was going to ask you for one more for one more iteration. But that. What do you substitute for the tragedy? I mean, now you have you have described at least my sense of of the narrative perfectly, which is it is a tragic narrative that has you know that even when acknowledged, there seem to be no uh, positive consequences, no no movement for change. What do we replace the tragedy with? Well, I want my non-Indian students at Isla School of Theology to finish their education at Isla with a clear understanding of their own history of violence. Uh, it was first articulated at the Manhattan Press Club by President Harry Truman in 1948 when he said, this is the only democracy in the world that has been established without recourse to violence or conquest. Well, that's a blatant lie, but it's such a comfortable lie, one that Americans believe so deeply. Americans are the, the righteous empire. They're the, the, the good guys in the white hats. They would never intentionally hurt anyone. Yet, the history of this continent is one of the violence of conquest from the very beginning, beginning with uh, with Jamestown, the Episcopalians there, with the, the Pilgrim Separatists at Plymouth, with, with the Puritans at Boston. Within a year or two, in every case, they were busy killing Indians and stealing Indian food first and then Indian land. And then they create these myths to make it okay. Like Indians are less than human because they were not farmers, they're hunter-gatherers. And then what do you do? You move in and steal their farming land first, the places they've got cleared in the woods, in order to prove the point that they're not farmers because you press them back further into the woods where they have nothing but, uh, but, but, but game animals to hunt uh, unless they have time to clear new lands to plant new, new crops. Our people were farmers, agriculturalists. Well, once you figure out they were farmers, then anthropologists come up with this new word to put Indians in their place. Indians were not agriculturalists. They were horticulturalists. <laughs> and I... that never mind 
that, that when George Washington's armies uh, uh, attacked Indian people in the Ohio Valley, those villages had a two-year back supply of corn stored. In other words, they were huge agriculturalists with economic surpluses and wealth. So, so this leads to um, what I'm going to, and again, to, to, to put a, a bug in your ear, I'm going to ask you a question in a couple minutes that's going to lead us to the sovereignty question. And the question I'm going to ask you is, what happens once we acknowledge the violence? What happens once your students or someone else uh, gets past the tragedy narrative and acknowledges their history of violence? So, uh, but, but I don't want to ask that yet because I want to focus on something you say in your book, actually two different things. Uh, in your introduction, you write that while everyone in North America today knows something about American Indians, it seems that no one really knows much at all about Indians except Indians. And then you add, and even much of what we know about ourselves is misinformation served up by public schools. So you start by acknowledging that there's all of this ignorance. Uh, and then you in, 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 you talk about, for example, that there were 100 million people. Uh, uh, the indigenous population was 100 million strong when Columbus showed up, which is an astonishing number when you think of the stories. And then you outline four core differences between the, the worldview that you're talking about and the Euro-Christian worldview. So I guess... You're not just starting from ignorance. You're starting from misinformation. You're, st- you're not just starting from people who don't know anything. You're starting from people who think they know stuff, yes. and that stuff is, is tremendously wrong. So how do you begin the conversation, and then what are the differences that you'd like to highlight to help us understand better what it is we don't know? Let me start with a question you were asking earlier about, uh, about God and, and why I don't believe in a creator the difference in worldview maybe fundamentally can be described in terms of these uh, the, these mental images that get voiced and articulated in metaphors over and over and over again. The Euro-Christians come with a, a, an image of this up-down schema. Everything is up-down so that hierarchies reign supreme. I think in that article I I suggest if I'm going to name a creator, I've got to pick a gender. And and usually we're going to fall into the trap of picking the Christian male sky god and arguing that Waconda, the creator, is a, a male sky god. We've immediately implemented a false image in the Indian world, this up-down image schema of hierarchy that puts God on top and the world below, humans above everything else. It's called anthropocentrism. Men above women, husband above wife, adults above children, presidents above Congress and above the people generally, kings over their uh, their whole realms. That up-down image schema gets repeated in the business sector. So you have CEOs above managers, managers above uh, the workers, uh, and, and you can't imagine the military-industrial complex functioning without that up-down image schema of hierarchy. Well, Indian people function traditionally out of harmony and balance, not, not an up-down hierarchy. And people will say to me, yeah, but Osages had chiefs. Well, they're called Gallega, and we did better than that. We actually had two of those people in every village, one sky chief and one earth chief, and they took turns every other day being in, in charge, like having Mitt Romney on Mondays and, and Barack Obama on Tuesdays. Now, once I get there, white Americans have trouble wrapping their mind around that because they see those two choices as so conflictive. Yet Argaega had no real dictatorial authority at all within the village. Their job is to reflect back the consensus of the whole, to maintain harmony and balance. And it's not just harmony and balance in my lodge or in my village, but it's a harmony and balance 
that has to be inclusive of all the world around us. So we're talking about four-legged. We're talking about flying things. We're talking about trees and rocks, streams and lakes, mountains. All of that has to be in balance in order for the people to be in balance so that there is no anthropocentrism. We're related to everything around us and have to treat everything around us as relative. Okay, but the but okay, so the white voice in my head, right, is struggling with this this notion and I think it's pretty interesting and pretty cool, but then part of me says, but surely there were power struggles, not just between the sky chief and the earth chief, if I remember the terms right, but also surely there are some people who wanted to date the same person. You know, there were there were there were there were fights about romance, there was fights about um scarcity. I mean ha- in this model, how are person-to-person conflicts dealt with, I find it, and maybe I'm just wrong, but I find it hard to imagine a society that doesn't have the everyday jealousies and conflicts and and, and trials and tribulations that, that seem normal for um, what I'm used to. But the difference is in the socialization of children. Okay. See, in the Euro-West, in that up-down image schema of hierarchy, what emerges, especially by the Renaissance, is this radical Euro-Christian individualism. And it runs so deep that my white student said, I love, can't imagine a world that doesn't function around the importance of the individual. In the Indian world, we're communityist, so that every child is raised thinking of the good of the, the whole, thinking the good of the lodge, thinking the good of the clan, the good of the whole village. And yeah, were there those other human sentiments? I'm sure there were, but but they they, they get put into a socialization context of the good of the whole, particularly jealousies around romance because it's not a competition among the males for the woman that 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 up down image schema breeds competition but but in this world of balance you have to balance genders first of all and that gets done more often than not by privileging women instead of men which means if there's competition for the love of a woman, it's the woman who gets to choose. And the men back off once the woman makes her choice clear. So, you know, were, were there hard feelings around that? I'm, I'm sure there must have been, but it's still, you know, framed in terms of my concern for the good of the whole. Balance and harmony communityism versus individualism. And remember, that's one of the differences I outline in that book. I need to jump ahead because the clock is ticking, and we haven't even talked about sovereignty. So, so the question, that the transitional question that I, that I uh, wanted to ask you was, once your students acknowledge the history of violence, what then? And that leads to the question of, you know, what is the art— what is the argument for returning sovereignty to the tribes? Is it possible? And is it, I don't know how to ask this. I don't want to rephrase something wrong. So, so what, what happens to the students once they acknowledge the violence? Yeah. And, and, I, and, 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 and is the, the proper response to acknowledging the violence arguing for and trying to achieve sovereignty, I guess is what yeah, I'm trying to let, ask. Let me jump in and, and suggest, at least in passing, that even the use of the word sovereignty puts us in the your Christian intellectual uh, tradition, because that, that that's particularly today, that that's a term that comes out of uh, Westphalia, 1648, the treaty that ended that massive... Uh, Inter, uh, uh, intra-Christian war uh, that killed so many people in Europe. Uh, yeah, wh- whether we can talk about sovereignty 
as a useful term is still up in the air for me. But nevertheless, we've got to talk about how did Indian autonomy come to an end? Indians never ceded their autonomy. No group actually ever ceded its autonomy, unless you want to say the Narragansetts did that uh, in the 17th century when they agreed to uh, uh, pledge fealty to the King of England. Uh, whether they knew what they were doing or not is another question. That's why that's a questionable example even there. Now, Indian sovereignty was eroded legally through a series of court cases that begin with Johnson v. McIntosh, continue in, in uh, Marshall's majority decisions in, in uh, Cherokee v. Georgia and then Worcester v. Georgia in the early 1830s, where he eventually calls Indian people only quasi-sovereign. He creates a whole new language legally to talk about Indian sovereignty. They're domestic dependent nations. I mean, nobody knows what a domestic dependent nation is because nation has legal force. Nation implies sovereignty in European discourse. Just as the word a people uh, implies sovereignty. So what's the difference between autonomy and sovereignty and why is why is autonomy or is autonomy a more authentic or more useful term? Well, uh, I'm using it simply because it makes more sense to me than sovereignty. Essentially, it's, it's, uh, both of those are difficult today because l legally the American Indians have been backed into corners and, and hemmed in in these places called reservations that aren't big enough to pursue our traditional old economies, require us to engage in new economies, that perforce ha have to give in to the uh, money economy, wage economy uh, of, of the conqueror. Um, and even then, most reservations don't have the natural resources in order to generate the kind of wealth that uh, we see that your Christian people have developed for themselves. Even when we have that, even when we have huge coal reserves or uranium resources, as are both available on the Navajo Reservation, it gets framed in terms of a national security interest to make those things available to industry at a cheap rate so that the actual royalties then paid back to the Navajo Nation are not nearly what they would be if those mines were on white land. I don't know what to say to conclude this episode other than to thank you for your time and to no tell you that I and I know my listeners will be reflecting on this for a very long time and that I hope that you feel that the, the questions that, that I asked on their behalf were... <laughs> uh, were the right questions to get us all to think about the things that we need to think about. Well, let me thank you for the way you handled yourself. Uh, you, you you did remarkably well for uh, a non-Indian that, that 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 I hadn't spoken to at any length to before. Uh, you you did you, you you did this just about right. I'm glad to be a part of your audience uh, and to be with them and to be able to share what I've shared. Well, thank you so much. On behalf of, of everyone, thank you, George Tink Tinker, for joining us on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I will be back with a short wrap-up right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. 
You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with George Tinker about uh, tribal sovereignty, but so much more. It's it's an odd thing to spend much of your career talking about stuff you don't know anything about and doing it in front of a live audience and doing it in a way that will be recorded for a long time. But you get used to it. And I learned during the show. And so when I'm faced with something that so reminds me that even when I think I don't know anything, I know something, I don't know how to deal with it. And this was one of those conversations where the levels of what I didn't know, the levels of not knowing how to think or how to respond to something were so profound that all I could do, which I hope I always do, is advocate for the listeners because I certainly wouldn't risk advocating for Tink. That's not my place. All I can do is give him a space to challenge me, to answer my questions, to put his ideas forth so that then I can reflect on it and then all of you can reflect on it. How do we have a relationship with someone whom we aren't advocating for, whom we aren't speaking for, particularly in the media, particularly in a radio show? How do we do that? Well, to a certain extent, I just want to share the experience of having a wonderful conversation with someone who talks and thinks in a radically different way than I do. How we deal with difference is a sign of who we are as people. Many of us like to say we celebrate difference, but comfortable difference doesn't tell us as much as uncomfortable difference, as difference that really challenges who we are and how we think. And so all I can say to conclude today's show is that I am going to listen to it again because I have to figure out exactly what I was feeling as I performed it for you. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein. This is Why Philosophical Discussion About Everyday Life. As always, it's a deep honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>